Now, welcome to another inspiring edition of Sound Insight with Dr. Tom Curran. Well, good morning and welcome to the program. This is Tom Curran. I'm joined again by Sister Mary Eucharista. Hey, Sister, how are you? Oh, I'm spectacular again, Tom. <laughs> yes, that's such a great way of saying it, spectacular. Sister, so today we're recording this on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, or what I knew it as growing up, the Triumph of the Cross. And yet today's theme, what we're going to talk about, is the sorrows, the seven sorrows of our Blessed Mother, which is tomorrow's feast day. Even though this program isn't going to air until a few days later, we're going to focus a little bit more on that whole time travel again and just stay connected to the reality that um, we can reflect on a theme that's present and current and, and see how the Lord shows up in all that. So I'm very excited to do that today. So I can't wait to get started. Hey, this is Dr. Tom Curran, the host of Sound Insight, but also a realtor serving wonderful folks like you in the state of Washington and in Idaho. I've had the privilege and pleasure of helping dozens of families in the last two and a half years discern and find a, a strategy, a path, and a plan to help their families find a whole new life in eastern Washington and northern Idaho. If I could be of service to you in that, I would love to. Please reach out drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. In order to get started well, sister, we always love to begin with a prayer. And I normally am praying before we get started. So I'm going to invite you to lead us in a prayer as we get launched into our time together. Let's do it. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Gracious and loving Father, we just were invited to name you in this sign of the cross that we celebrate today. I ask you to help us to attract your son into the peripheries of our lives and especially into the, the main stream of our lives so that we may be truly ready to receive your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the cross. The cross is a sign of salvation, healing, being saved. We thank you that you allow us to use this sign foreshadowed by the bronze seraph fiery serpents in uh, who were who God directed Moses to create out of bronze and put it on the top of a, a cross in the desert. We thank you for the ability for those chosen people to look upon that symbol of your crucifixion, Lord, dear Son of God. Uh, and be saved from the bites of the seraph serpents that were killing them. Lord, we are in need of your saving help always. Of course, you give us your beautiful church, and you give us the sacraments. You give us so much. Help us to look upon your crucifixion, your cross, your uh, the beautiful sign of salvation that we place in our homes, hopefully in our workplaces, and in all of those places where we need your saving help, which is everywhere. And we ask that you please give us the trust that the chosen people had when they looked upon that beautiful uh, symbol or foreshadowing of you and were saved. Help us to look upon you on the cross and know that we are saved. In your name, sweet Jesus, 
we again make this great sign in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Sister. Sister Mary Eucharista, as uh, you know, you'd be getting to know her better and better if you join in on my program, um, is a Sister of Mary, Mother of the Church. And so as we started scanning ahead and we had this date locked in to do the recording, it's like, well, what are we going to talk about? And Sister knows how thorough I am with all of my pre-programming <clears throat> notes and detailed outlines. And no, I just know us too well, Sister. And Not. We'll, just, <laughs> we'll roll with everything. We'll just roll with it. But she, All right. But she's like, give us at least a little bit of guidance. Now, I just said that we're going to talk about the seven sorrows of our blessed mother, our lady of sorrows, whose feast day is the 15th. But I want to ask one question, one question about this feast day, the, the exaltation of the Holy Cross, the exaltation, the triumph of the cross. You were mentioning the look upon the cross to be saved, look upon the cross to be healed, look upon the cross to see your savior. Um, is there a particular crucifix that you have found helpful in your devotion? Is there a, um, like, for instance, um, I'm going to mention the San Damiano cross, but is there a particular image of Christ crucified that has been moving to you? Maybe an artistic portrayal. Maybe it was a particular crucifix that you had in your life. Is there is there a crucifix like that that, has a very special place of meaning for you? I really love the crucifix that one of my friends in uh, the mid Midwest gave to me. He, he purchased it from uh, people who came to his parish from the Holy Land. And in fact, I'll just kind of turn the computer here a little bit and show you. I don't know if you can see it. Can you see it across the room? I can, there? yes. Okay. Anyway, that crucifix was very special to me, but... There way, is sister, another... I like how you did that live. That was really cool. You just oh, did, like, thanks. hey, I, I'm going to just flex with this. I'm not going to, I'm oh, going to yeah. just show it. Let's go. Yeah. Well, but even more interesting is a surprise that came to me when I was taking my students to, to uh, uh, Assisi. And you mentioned the San Damiano crucifix. And I was just uh, something very interesting happened to me in 2005. I had made the trip over with my students in 2003. And I missed the San Damiano crucifix, which is in the, the Church of St. Clair in Assisi. And I was very sad about it, but also uh, this other student had uh, fallen by the wayside. And he wasn't even from our school, but I, I helped him out. And as I was helping him, I realized I'd lost my group and I had to stay with this kid because he was having a panic attack or something. So I just helped him breathe and I waited and pretty soon his group came back and helped him. And then I went on to catch up with my group at the Basilica of St. Francis. So I missed St. Clair's church and I was like, no, bummer. I thought I heard that St. Francis's, uh, you know, clothes were there and I kind of wanted to see that. And so in 2005, I took another group of seniors and it was really fun because uh, I, this time I did get to go to see the Church of St. Clair. But as I came into the, I, I, I was actually outside the church um, and we had been told by our tour leader, never, ever give money to the beggars. So what I did was I went in and I got this European candy, really tiny candy. And especially the kids enjoyed it because they would all go, you know, Oh, oh, you know, give us, give us money, give us money. And I, I would, um, I would give them candy 
And the kids would drop their coins and take the candy because the coins weren't for them anyway. The candy was. And the, I was just delighted giving the people who were begging the candy. So um, I had just met uh, an Italian beggar and he was so happy. And looking back, I almost wonder, was this an angel? Could this have been St. Francis? Because of the grace that came to me at St. Clair's Church. So I, uh, a sister came out of the church door as I was climbing the steps. I had just finished giving this candy to this beggar. He and I were laughing and telling jokes and talking to each other, me in English, him in Italian. We were whooping with laughter. This nun came in on it. She knew a little tiny bit of English. And so she joined in. And we're all laughing so heartily that I'm going in feeling a little guilty, like, wow, I hope I don't run into one of my students and have them see me guffawing in the vestibule of St. Clair's Church. So I close the door quietly behind me. I get myself all calm. I look up and there is St. Francis's robe. And I'm like, wow, he either this robe was a miniskirt or this guy was really, really short. Turns out he was really short. So I was just admiring it and saying, you know, thanking the Lord for giving us this second class relic right there in the back of the church. Then I go, I proceed forward and I'm looking for my group and I see them in this anteroom uh, to the right. So I go up and Tom, I'm walking into, I'm, I'm relatively recollected. I just finished laughing so heartily. I was refreshed by the laughter, happy that I could help the beggar delighted that I could talk to a nun in English and she's talking to me in Italian, marveling at St. Francis's short stature in my mind. And I come in and I see a crucifix that I'm pretty used to seeing, the San Damiano crucifix, except something happened. When I looked at this, this crucifix, I just caught a glance of it and something overwhelmed me from within. And I caught, have you ever read in a novel or something, she, a sob caught in her throat or a sob convulsed him suddenly. That happened to me. In this meeting of the eyes of this crucifix, because he's the living Christ and me. And I just started bawling. Okay, first of all, I do not like to cry. Second of all, I'm with my students. They're turned around and they're like, wow, look, sister, look, look. And I'm going, <laughs> and I was trying to not vocalize it, but I was, they could hear me going, you know, and I was like, what's going on? I have never in my life had an experience like this. And as I am, I'm so overwhelmed by this feeling and this knowledge that something deeply supernatural is not only calling out to me, but drawing me in that I uh, one of my helpers actually came over to me and she you know she was working with the kids for me she was the one that would go into the bars at night with them because I had them all sign their paperwork for beer and wine anyway they were delighted because I, I said I do not take you to Europe unless you get these signed because I'm not going to be monitoring all of your what you put in your mouth so anyway they were um, kind of really like sister's not usually like this. I don't know what's going on. And so they kind of were watching me. But uh, this woman, her name was Melissa, came over, put her arm around me and gave me Kleenex and said, sister, I, I understand. I've had this experience myself over in another place where there was a church. And she said she just had this overwhelming. And I said, well, uh, 
I, I don't know what is happening. And so I said, I have to go. So I left and I immediately stopped crying. I was like, oh, thank God, whatever that was. So I went back in immediately. The same thing happened. I realized it is the crucifix. So San Damiano crucifix is a living Christ icon that has a spiritual power that swept me in so deeply and so thoroughly that I could not restrain my sobs. And I've had various, you know, I've asked various spiritual directors and, uh, you know, men of God, women of God, what do you suppose this is that happened to me there? Because I've never had a, a like experience and I, I don't know if I ever will. St. Francis and I are definitely going to be discussing this uh, down the road. But I, I tell you, if you want to know which one uh, has touched me, it is this one. It is an icon painted on wood. And there's a rooster at the knee, near the knee of the San Damiano crucifix. He is the rooster uh, fulfilling the Lord's prophecy that Peter would deny him. And, but a rooster is also a sign of the new of evangelization. A rooster is actually put on the pulpits in the Holy Land of uh, the um, Orthodox churches because that was a sign also of evangelization. So I like to think that in Peter's denial, he was also the first to acknowledge the Christ, the Son of the Living God. Um, I mean, even though he was the same man, he did both. And that's us. We glorify God and we sin. And uh, it was a beautiful symbol. Uh, we don't know who painted the icon, but I know that there is a spiritual power there that St. Francis experienced and now I experienced. Wow, Sister Mary, that is a really beautiful story. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. Uh, I've never shared it publicly before. So this is, uh, yeah, oh it first happened goodness. here. Just, just think about that, Tom. Wahoo. That is beautiful. Well, you know what? Here's what I'm going to say. There are people who are meant to see or hear this, depending on how they're going to encounter this interview. There are people who are meant to hear this. And I think that that's really important. Hi, this is Dr. Tom Curran, and you know me as the host of Sound Insight. I am also letting folks know that as a realtor licensed in the state of Washington and in Idaho, I love serving Catholic families and others who are discerning a move for yourselves. It's much more than buying or selling a home. It's discerning a whole new life. If that's something that you would find uh, a help in, if I could be of service to you, please be in touch. You can find out more at drtomcurran.com, drtomcurran.com. So let's focus on that experience you had for a moment. Here's what I'll share. I would say that when you have a space that isn't just a, I, I put the word just in quotes, just a sanctuary, just a place set apart for God and for liturgy, like a church, but it's a place that has also been invested with the faith, the prayers, the devotion, the poured out hearts of holy men and women down through the centuries, it permeates that space. And it carries a, an atmosphere that we are privileged in our own way in accord with God's plan for our lives to draw upon, to connect into. And so my sense is that 
the Lord had a privilege that he set apart for you to be able to come into contact with the living encounter with the Lord that, I don't know, millions of Catholics down through the centuries at least have have invested in that space that let's call it tens of millions of catholics in the last almost 800 years have invested in that space to come before the uh, the the lord presented in the form of an icon of the san damiano crucifix and it, it's it's like you were you were brought in and you had you got to have the event of an encounter with the graces that the Lord has associated with that space. That's very beautiful. But I think that if I don't know what you think about that as a as a as a theory, if someone has shared that with you before, but I know that that's what I've experienced in different holy spaces and churches. I can sense the the quality of God's presence and power that I link to the faith of the the many, many, many faithful who have prayed in that space. Yeah, thank you, Tom. Um, as I as I'm hearing you right now, I'm also reflecting on the experience itself. I've never been spiritually catapulted into a space of bewilderment, deep grace, exceptional favor, and uh, uncontrollable emotion as I was in that time. And it wasn't a moment because, as I've told you, I, I went out thinking this is a passing thing and I'll, I'll get used to it and I'll go back in. The second I went back in, I experienced it more as a living power of Christ that is a different aspect of his crucifixion and a realization in the life of the church that St. Francis was told, rebuild my church from this living experience of Christ in this crucifix. Um, It's a miraculous crucifix. Um, I expected nothing because I went in with a completely open uh, uh, heart. I I did not know even that the San Damiano crucifix was in St. Clair's church. I recognized it immediately, but it was the gaze of the living Christ uh, without my knowledge staring into my soul and saying, eliciting something from me that I couldn't explain. And, you know, in those days, I didn't know I would be leaving the city of Ecantism that I thought was home and going forward into uh, the, the great, uh, the, the great home of the church that I was born into, but had left through uh the volition of my parents who thought they were doing the right thing. So I, I don't know. I, I just, I, when I, the living Christ gave me a message that day and it affirmed something, but it also shifted something and it also was miraculous. And I don't know what the answer is, but, but I'm listening. I mean, I'm sure somebody will have, you know, the, a new perspective that will resonate somehow. I don't know. Well, let's, um, so uh, two final thoughts on this. Uh, the first is, I'll give you the the quote you've heard before from Pope Benedict's first encyclical, Deus Caritas Est, God is Love. 
Love that one. When he says, being a Christian is not the result of an ethical choice or a profound idea, but the encounter with an event, a person, Jesus Christ, that gives life a new horizon and a decisive direction. That's a really incredible quote, right? He's saying that, look, don't just think that you're living your Catholic faith if you're following the moral law. You're stating that you intellectually adhere to the teachings of the church, and you're following the church rituals that are required of you. No, 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 no. Being a Christian is about encountering Christ in such a profound way that it's a life-changing event that gives your life a new horizon. There's a whole new sense of what my life is about and a decisive direction. It changes everything. It sounds like in some ways you had that kind of encounter. It was soul-shaking for sure. Um, I also think that I don't know why our Lord, I've always had a deep reverence and recognition of the spousehood of my vocation. And I don't know if uh, somehow this, this uh, soul shaking event was something to do with the living Christ and the church. And, you know, I, I, I'm just so happy that he spoke to me through the crucifix uh, in words that were not vocal, you know, words, they were, uh, the only thing I could respond with was sobs. Mm. And that's pretty weird for me, but it's also uh, really remarkable that the Lord could shake that from me in such a moment. Well, you you talked about the living Christ, the living Christ. It's the living Lord, Jesus Christ, who encountered me. And uh, I, again, I think back to Pope Benedict, who says God is either an idea or he is the living God. And um, I think that a lot of Catholics who might be hearing or watching this sister have maybe remained at a level of belief that is connected to externals like ideas. But to say that, no, brothers and sisters, if what Sister Mary Eucharista has shared, this intimate encounter she had that was soul shaking, that was overwhelming, that changed the 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 inside out that had this momentous impact on her was an encounter with the living lord that this is not something is this something that only happens to nuns is this a nope nope because uh i i have met many lay people who have had what saint ignatius calls uh a consolation without previous cause and that's what this was um i told uh as my, the leader of my eight-day Ignatian retreat that I took a few years back um, about this, and he identified it as that. And he said, I, I'm not going to propose what this could have been. You know, the, there are so many answers that could come through on this. And I know you've gotten a lot of answers, but he said this was definitely from the heart of the Lord. And, um, and do sisters receive things that are different? Perhaps. But I think since all of us are called for to be saints, great saints, um, anyone is privy to being shaken up by the living Christ. Anyone. Amen. Well, in fact, this is something I would say, ask, seek, knock, right? Yep. Um, ask and seek and knock for the living God to become more fully the living God in your life. 
Don't be afraid. The Lord wants to reveal himself to you in ways that you couldn't even imagine. And what sister received as a gift, unmerited, undeserved, she didn't figure out some special formula. It was given as a gift, surprising, caught off guard, and yet it had this decisive impact. That's the living God. And so um, on, we're recording this on the Feast of the Transfiguration, I'm sorry, the, uh, the, the Triumph of the Cross, the Exaltation of the Holy Cross of Jesus. Um, maybe go find an image of the San Damiano Crucifix. Because what stands out among many things is the fact that his eyes are open, that it's the living Jesus. And an icon, remember, is like a window. It becomes a, a place of encounter with that which is pictured or depicted in the icon. So praying in the presence of an icon is, in a certain sense, an opportunity to prayerfully come into contact through God's grace with the event depicted. And so imagine coming into contact with the living Lord Jesus Christ at the point where he is not dead on the cross, but where he is the living Lord Jesus exalted on the cross, and he's looking at you. How powerful is that? Also, um, you know, in our technology, we see in our computer screens, little icons. And I remember in my uh, getting my bachelor's at Whitworth, um, our uh, technology teacher said, sister, you would probably be the one most efficiently to describe what an icon is. But I'll tell you that just as an icon opens up a spiritual world for the participant in the prayer uh, with the icon before that person, so uh, does an icon on your screen you touch it and it opens up a new world. And that's where the whole perspective of, or the whole term comes from is the opening up of a, a new world or the opening up of a, of a new, you know, application on the, on the computer. But also, by the way, there is an icon retreat uh, led by Abbot Damien Higgins, uh, a, a Catholic Byzantine abbot from uh, Red, Redlands, California, who is going to be, uh, teaching uh, a week long. It's going to be from Tuesday, like the 26th, I think, of September to the uh, 1st of October, I believe. It's Tuesday to Saturday, whatever those dates are. And he's going to be uh, teaching us the, um, we'll be writing uh, an icon of the Good Shepherd and with a little lamb on his shoulders. So um, that's something that I think is important to remember. We do have a little waiting list right now, but sometimes people will suddenly have to drop off. If you're interested, um, come and get on the um, get on the list for next year if you can't make it this year. It happens every year, but it's pretty cool. We might even start having it twice a year if it's uh, effective. So just so you that's know. so powerful. Yes, yeah, sister's talking about Immaculate Heart Retreat Center, ihrc.net. She's the director of programs and retreats there. And so IHRC, Immaculate Heart Retreat Center in on the South Hill of Spokane, a beautiful setting to come and enjoy many days of prayer, uh, times of uh, personal prayer, personal retreat, but also the many programs and retreats they offer there. So please go to IHRC.net. One so other just, cool thing that, yeah, uh, uh, that Father Damien talks about is that he um, he says, as the image is beginning to form through, uh, you begin with chaos, and then the form is engraved, the icon is opened, 
And then the uh, light begins, you know, the light of the paint and the brilliance of the paint begins to show forth the image who is then gazing upon you as you are, uh, you know, putting, applying the paint to the, or writing, as they say, writing or painting the image. And that saint or our Lord or whoever it is that you're working with is gazing upon you. And you are also encountering that the person who is uh, the form is taking place with that. And then at the very end, each of the uh, icons is consecrated by father. And then you take them home and it's like a blessed uh, object in your home. That's so beautiful. I, I love what you said there. That's a beautiful way of describing it, that the spirituality of icons involves the idea that you're not just gazing upon a holy event depicted in the form of an icon. No, you're being gazed upon by the one who has been depicted in this icon through the holy activity of writing. You called it writing an icon, not painting an icon. And right. so um, it, I love what that does is it puts the, the emphasis on the action of God, on the action of heaven. It puts the initiative on the action of the living Lord or of the saints or of the event that is depicted. And I think that that, again, that offers a powerful shift in our life of prayer. When we move from my prayer time is principally me doing things, whether it's praying a rosary or other uh, reading my Bible, we can, we can relate to our time of prayer, which is relating to God. We can relate to our time of prayer as us being the principal actors rather than, no, no, no. We're the principal receivers to God's action. It's the Lord who takes the initiative, who knocks on the door of our hearts, who graces us to open. It's he who comes in. It's he who communicates to us. It's he who nourishes us. And we are active in a receptive mode before we're active in a any kind of responsive mode. I think that that's a, that's again, that's something that can be a bit foreign because I think many Catholics struggle with the idea that, well, when I take time to pray, nothing happens. And this whole spirituality of an icon can tip all of that on its head and stop and say, no, wait a minute. Are you waiting in prayer? Are you in a position of receptivity, of being open in prayer? Are you allowing the Lord to draw close to you in prayer? You know, those sorts of things. Yeah. Well, and that you're speaking here about the Marian uh, position of prayer rather than the patrine position of prayer. And that's the whole, rather than the action, you have a receptivity or, or uh, like, what is God asking of me right now? Uh, isn't that just the whole tenor of our lives? That's doing God's will is listening, receiving, and then going forward. And yeah. that's she who has heard the word of God and keeps it. In other words, does the action according to what she has heard, which the sorrowful mother certainly did. Mm -hmm. Sister, I like how you did that. You just, you just oh, gently, just gently turned us to the theme that we were starting on after I asked one simple question, that ah. one simple question, 
about a crucifix. Hey, I was I was going with the spirit here. Come on. Yeah, hey, absolutely. You don't realize how many other side little side roads I've I've surrendered along the way. So I can only imagine, Tom. So let's <laughs> let's let's go to Our Lady of Sorrows. So the tradition of Our Lady of Sorrows is that there are seven sorrows of the Blessed Mother, and we're not going to get through all seven. I surrender that. So we could. We could. I'm I'm willing. All right. Well, we'll see how quickly we can get through all seven then. All right. Um, let me tell you one interesting thing that I found out um, on Wikipedia. So it must be true. Is that uh, of course. Our Lady of Sorrows was first known as Our Lady of Compassion. Isn't that interesting? Our Lady of Compassion. Because this particular sorrow, so the insight is, is that it's a sorrow associated with her suffering with her compassion her mm -hmm. suffering with her son, Jesus. And so Our Lady of Sorrows is always intimately connected to the passion and the suffering of her son. I never knew that. Beautiful. Yeah. In fact, one day when I was going uh, doing my thesis for my uh, master's in philosophy, my very erudite and uh, very, very educated professor or director said, you just said compassionate. Is that to compassionate if the church invites us to compassionate the sorrowful mother at this time of the passion of her son? He said, you, 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 you changed this into a, a verb. Uh, is that, is that a word or did you just create that? I said, no, the, the church has, it's, it's in prayers. It's in all kinds of, oh, brilliant, brilliant. And that's what we do. We compassionate, Mary. I think that would probably be the best manner to proceed through these seven sorrows of Mary, to compassionate her. I remember a, um, a sister, uh, one of my teachers, once said in our sodality talk, she was giving us an inspirational talk before Lent. And she said, this is the time when you don't ask Mary for favors. You, you usually were saying, Mother Mary, please get me a heart that will do this or that will, you know, be be this better person or help me so that, you know, and it's all about, you know, us, you help me because you're the mother, right? Well, she said, this is the time when we give her honor and, and comfort her, put our arms around her and say, Mother, I'm so sorry that I did this to your son. And that has always stuck with me. And I like to remind people that this is a day, this is a time to give her comfort. Mary, give her comfort. We've got a relationship with the Lord. We've got a relationship with the saints and the angels. We've got a relationship with the Blessed Virgin Mary, the mother of the one that is the living Christ. And she is receiving that comfort and we're able to apply it to her immediately. It's kind of a cool thing. That is beautiful. So the seven sorrows. So I have to humbly confess um, when I uh, when I said, oh, let me name the seven sorrows. Uh, I need a little help. I've got so, them down. Yeah, you got them down. Well, sister, I hope so. All right. Yeah, so right. The first one is at the presentation. And so Simeon, right, is there to receive the presentation of the son at, at his being consecrated, giving over to the, the firstborn son. And, um, and it's there that Simeon says that, you know, behold, a sword shall pay. he, the son will be a sign of contradiction and behold, 
the, for the downfall and the rise of many. And you yourself, a, a heart, your, your heart shall be pierced by a sword. And so that theme of a sword piercing a heart is reminiscent of the way that all seven sorrows are depicted as seven big swords piercing into the heart of the Blessed Mother. But why don't, why don't we just start with that first one of the first sorrow of our, of our, of our Lady, of our Blessed Mother, um, the sword that happened at the moment where she presents her son to God? You got to think that maybe Simeon knew who Mary was because, uh, you know, uh, probably 12 or, uh, or so years before she was presented in the temple and he was prominent in the temple. He was seeking everywhere for the Messiah who the Lord had promised him. You, uh, you will not die before you've seen the Messiah. And he had this longing, urgent longing to see this, the Messiah. He sees Jesus. He says, now you uh, now thou dost dismiss thy servant, O Lord, in peace, because my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared for the face of all people, a light to the revelation of the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. They say that uh, Simeon was about 200 years old, and uh, that's a pretty old guy. He's probably being held up on both sides by somebody, but his eager burning eyes are looking for the Messiah as he holds him. He probably died that night. I mean, that's my imagination. But looking into the the eyes, the beautiful eyes of the Virgin Mother that he saw as a three-year-old coming to the temple, perhaps, at least traditionally, um, he's also seeing something that changes immediately into, this isn't going to be a fun time, though guess what? Something terrible is going to happen. This man who received the gift from God also had this deep knowledge that, oh my goodness, my daughter, you are going to suffer so badly. And uh, that second, um, that second sorrow was almost already starting when um, Joseph received the message of an angel. Did Mary get the message? No, she, uh, Joseph got the message. And Joseph had to prepare everything. And Mary herself is watching what? Well, your first child is the time when all the gals get together and ooh and ah, and now she's got to run out. Yeah, she runs with, with Joseph to Egypt, which isn't a friendly place, but there are Jews in Egypt, but they're all kind of like immigrant Jews. They're not going to be very rich and they're, they're not going to have. But the three magi have already, <coughs> excuse me, have already given their gifts. So Joseph gets him, gets Mary on the small uh, beast of burden and runs to Egypt uh, through the desert. My goodness. Which then, 12 years later, we've got Jesus lost hey, in the sister, temple. Hey, sister, hold on. Hey, 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 hey. You're come going on, way too fast here. You're just like, I'm like, you're going to get through all seven one way or the other. I oh, can yeah. See what you're doing I, here. I, I got to show I, you. We're, we're going to do just, it. Let me drop... 30 second insights into the first two, and then we'll let okay. you continue to roll. Okay. Alrighty. So regarding the presentation with the sword piercing the heart, I think of parents and trusting their kids to God. And it's something that I'm doing every day. And yeah. I think that there's a way in which I imagine that when I entrust my child into God's hands, that God's going to take care of them, right? Lead, provide, protect my children. Totally. But it, there's a vulnerability that parents ought to be aware of that, when we pray for our kids and entrust our kids to the Lord, the Lord loves our kids enough to bring them 
the grace of redemption, which means life out of death, which means the cross, which means dying to self, which means setting them free from bondage to sin and death and darkness. And that's something that will make us vulnerable to suffer with them as they make choices in life that lead them into darkness and suffering and sin and bondage. And so just to say, look to the Blessed Mother as a beautiful comfort, um, as a as a source of compassion, and to compassionate her to say, I get it in my own way, that my kids, when they become vulnerable to suffering, that is a real suffering in our lives. And the Blessed yeah. Mother gets it. Yeah. So that's the first one. The second one regarding the flight into Egypt, that one has become so meaningful to me today because I've helped so many families in the last four years move from places where Herod is trying to kill your child, you must flee. And so there are so many families that have made the discernment and the decision to uproot and to move with a, a quickness that said, I have to do this for the sake of rescuing my baby Jesus, for the sake of my kids. In fact, that's the number one reason over and over why families move. I'm not moving for myself, for my job, because I like the climate better, because of, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it was always a destination location for me. No, I'm moving for the spiritual flourishing or recovery of faith of my kids. That was my family. There we go. So that's yeah. a flight into a place that feels a bit like an exile, feels yep. a bit like a foreigner, feels mm -hmm. a bit like, what, what am I doing here? So anyway, so that there is a sorrow involved yeah. in doing what is necessary for the salvation of our kids. It'll yeah. introduce a suffering with Christ when we say yes to doing whatever we need to do to save our kids. So that's yep. second sorrow. Quick, quick thoughts. Yeah, uh, totally. Uh, this is, this is my dad had his, uh, he was a nuclear engineer, had his dream job. My mom had her dream home. We lived in a very, you know, posh high-end area of uh, Mesa Verde, California, or Costa Mesa. And uh, they dropped everything for the Lord for us. And they moved to Idaho. My mom had a farmhouse with massive stairs and uh, I mean, these huge high stairs and all wood and wood stove. And dad is like looking for a job and it's like nuclear engineer, come on, there's nothing here. So, you know, a, a very depressed area for any kind of engineering, any kind of, um, it, and, and yet it was to preserve the faith of our children. That was it period. So I hear you. Yeah. Um, and then uh, that third, you know, losing our children you know, uh, I, I keep remembering St. Ambrose telling St. Monica, uh, the, the uh, child of these tears can never be lost. And the children that we, by losing Jesus in the temple, Mary demonstrated trust that God would lead her to the place where Jesus could be found. And Joseph as well. You know, a man in a family is looking to protect, love his wife, and to protect and provide for his wife and children. Joseph is devastated, asking God in his mind, you know, I'm, I'm imagining, of course, but really this is what meditation brings us, the reality of our friends, the saints who are in the communion with us in the communion of saints. By the way, I'm giving a, 
a day of prayer on the communion of saints on November 1st. And if anyone's interested in getting a better and closer relationship with the communion of saints, the church militant, church triumphant, church suffering, we're all one with the angels. And there will be something on that day. So that is the third of the sorrows of Mary, the finding of Jesus in the temple. Okay, so two again, two quick insights on this one. The first is you're probably aware of how it could come to pass that Joseph and Mary would have lost Jesus for a day. What were they doing? Were they partying? Were they just not paying attention? And it was the idea that Jesus was 12 years old. The men were at the front of the caravan and the women were at the back. And the children would have been with the women. The, the men would have been with the with the men up front. Joseph, as a uh, Jesus as a 12-year-old, was probably thought by Joseph was expected, oh, he's still, he's still a child. He'll be with the women. And when the Blessed Mother didn't see him, oh, he's identifying himself as a man. He's with the men up front. And so it was only when they got back together that it was like, wait a minute, we've been traveling a day. And you don't have him? What do you mean? You don't have him? And so then now there's the whole day to go back to find him. And so that does raise one of the most terrifying experiences that a parent will ever have. And that is having a child be out of your safety, out of your control, out of your sense of, I know everything will be okay. And I got to tell you, when, I, when Carrie and I experienced that with one of our kids, it brought about uh, driving to our knees, a holy desperation where we had nothing but God to cling to. And it was incredibly purifying. It was, it was a tremendous suffering, but it was really and truly one of the greatest gifts God ever gave my family was the what came from that suffering. So I don't have more time to talk about it, but that that third sorrowful mystery is traditionally the one that caused the Blessed Mother the most suffering. And that, you know, yeah. isn't that interesting? Boy, because you know, for all she knew, this was the crucifixion of her son, or or the taking of the life of her son for the salvation of the world, and uh, or his gifting of himself. And uh, wow, poor poor oh the Blessed Mother, what she suffered. All right, so the last four, we can, we're going to be able to get this done because the last oh, yeah. four are all connected with the passion and death of Jesus, right? Yes. On the stations of the cross and then the two at the cross and then the one at the burial. So do you see how I just did that? Oh, I yeah. Just, you are brilliant. upon four. So let's let's dive, dive into the fourth one and then we'll, we'll get to the cross. So the fourth one is on the way of the cross, the encounter with Jesus carrying his cross with the Blessed Mother. I think in the Passion of the Christ, it demonstrates it most effectively with that uh, parallel of him falling as a child and Mary coming and just holding him and, and, and him finding full universe. Uh, Mary was his universe, his comfort. Babe, it's okay. You're with mama now. And yet he sees her on this road where there is no mercy and he sees her and she's looking at him. And he suddenly stands up straight and shoulders his cross. And he goes forward almost triumphant when before he was really, really feeling it. And, you know, this is, we don't think of the Lord as having these, you know, 
moments where he's ready to drop. I think the chosen shows it well, where he's exhausted from working so many miracles of healing and he comes back and all he can do is gasp for air and just try to, to make it to his bed. And we don't think of the Lord as having these deep emotions, but this is why we, the church offers us these, these uh, meditative devotions so that we can connect and compassionate and also remember that when we are suffering, to take those sufferings, shoulder our crosses, but also offer them as St. Paul directs with to um, fill in what is wanting in the sufferings of Christ. Christ opened up a little place in the passion for us to fill in our sufferings. And by participating in that passion, we are helping the entire world and particularly those people whose intentions are coming to our hearts that we need to, to assist. That's very beautiful, Sister. Sister Mary Eucharista joining me today on the program. We're talking about the seven sorrows of Mary. Sister, let's um, quickly touch upon the remaining sorrows. The Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross, behold your son, behold your mother. The Blessed Mother receiving the now um, dead body of the son of the son of God, Jesus, into her arms. Think of the Pieta. And then the accompanying and the burial of Jesus into the tomb. Um, with the women preparing him for burial. Um, so we only have a, a few short minutes left. So what would you want to draw attention to in those sorrows? Particularly when Mary is at the foot of the cross, she did not know that Jesus was giving the human race to her that we know of. And her reception of that is the same as it was at the time of the Annunciation. Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it done to me according to your word. She received the executioners of the person she loved most in the world, who was her son. And we, the murderers, are now her kids. And uh, so she receives us. And wow, that in, is so striking right there, what you just said. That is and, so striking. Thank you. And also her standing. She is standing. The woman at the tree is paralleling, uh, paralleling Eve at the tree of the garden. Um, receiving sin or starting sin and Mary or continuing sin and Mary is repairing uh, with in conjunction with the passion of her son, which has led uh, many theologians to believe that Mary is also a co-redemptrix, but that is actually not, uh, not a, a, a particular dogma of our faith, but it's something to really consider. Under the cross, I think the image that is the, the sixth sorrow um, Mary holding the broken, bruised body of her son, looking at the travesty that has happened to him over a period of 24 hours. And he has now um, become the, the most, uh, as it says in the prophecy, a worm and no man. He is so swollen and broken. And he, she looks up in the Passion of the Christ at us as the fourth wall breaks and she uh, connects with us and uh, says, this is my son. Look what has been done to him. Um, then, of course, as his broken body is washed and placed in the tomb, she is forever, she thinks, but not sure, uh, the stone is rolled over and this is the seventh and last sorrow. Yeah, it was. Uh, I was reading a reflection on that seventh sorrow and it talked about the tender motherly love with which she would have cleaned 
and addressed the 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 damage that as far as she was able um that had been inflicted upon her son the son of god and the reflection then ended with and then when she had to put the burial cloth over the face for the last time that we you know we identify as the shroud of turin but that burial cloth to put it over his face what was that like for her in that moment you know the tears that she would have shed as if she was you know trying to get through this mystery of what's happened to to Jesus to her son and yeah. the suffering involved with that is this goodbye is this the end what's happening here god where are you um that was it was really powerful for me to read that that is uh, a, a terrific uh intuition and this is something that we have to think about because this is what experienced uh, was experienced by the mother of god she is I mean, we don't know her inner thinking but we know that she suffered so deeply that there's no way to express the depth of her suffering um and i think that the 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 script there are scriptures and also the the if we could read the um office divine office of the feast of the sorrowful mother um it's stay me up with apples and hold, you know, it's, it's, I, I am dying with love, but also she's, it's, uh, it's this, she was not in ecstasy of joy during this time. Let's just put it that way. She had sorrow so grave and so horrible. Uh, we can't even begin to imagine it. And also that, that cloth that she laid over Jesus face at the end was actually the cloth that was folded up and placed over the, um, at the side and meanwhile, the whole, uh, the other part of the shroud with the bind bounding, you know, the binding part of the linen was all shrunken down and he, his resurrected body came out of that. And then he took that cloth off his face and folded it and put it on the side. And that's why when John and Peter are looking at that, they're going, okay, there's no way physically this thing could have happened with just, I mean, how did he get out of there? What happened? What Oh my gosh, this thing's blowing my mind. It blows all our minds. It should blow our minds. Mm -hmm. That's so powerful. Uh, this is Sister Mary Eucharista joining me today on the program when we're talking about the um, the Our Lady of Sorrows. Sister, any closing comments that you'd like to make that um, we've done some um, sort of quicker reflections on these seven sorrows. Any closing recommendations to uh, to folks who are watching or listening regarding how to make the, like these mysteries become more alive in, in our own lives. I think that when we are uh, looking at the devotions of the church, sometimes things, especially reflecting on sorrow, uh, it, it's repellent to us initially. But when we get into it, we realize I have sorrows in my life that I don't know what to do with. That's why the repellent thing happens. And I think that when we experience sorrow, Sometimes it's very helpful to have reflected on something as deep as the sorrow of Christ or the sorrow of the mother, uh, his mother, and uh, to engage our sufferings at that point, even sufferings we don't know we're going to have. And by doing that, we're actually creating a bigger space in us for grace and for the capacity to build the church on earth as it is in heaven, because that's what our mission is, to tell the good news and continue to extend uh, hope to the world through knowing that our sufferings are valuable and that we can give those to the Lord. 
Amen. That's beautiful. That's Sister Mary Carista again joining me today. Sister, I always appreciate having you on another delightful interview. I know we'll have you back by God's grace and mercy and your generosity. Thank you so much for taking time today. Thank you, Tom, so much. And God bless everyone.